Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. Zach, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank- happy early Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is coming up uh, this week, and uh, it's been a while since we did one of these. We apologize for that, but, you know, time gets away from you sometimes. And uh, we've got Thanksgiving coming up. So, Zach, what's some traditions you all have as a, as a family when it comes to Thanksgiving? You got anything unique, or is it all just turkey and Charlie Brown like everybody else? We have... No, I don't know that we have anything super unique. We used to do a turkey bowl game back when everybody was in the same town. That was kind of fun. We just all go mm-hmm. out and play football in the park a little bit. We used to do um, our tradition for a while was doing for a couple years there. We did almost anything other than a regular turkey. We tried a turducken one year. You're one of those families. Yeah, we tried a turducken one year. <laughs> it was very disappointing. We deep fried the turkey one year. That was that was fun, if a little dangerous. Um, so you know, but other than we just do the normal stuff. We eat. We watch the football game. We hang out and, and all that. I remember so. I went to a turkey bowl one year and it was a bunch of guys from church and my friend Steven and uh, I had a great game. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that. I remember I made this incredible catch down the sideline where I stuck my feet out like I was, you know, some amazing yeah. NFL receiver and just barely got him inside. And then there was one where he caught the ball and I got the perfect pursuit angle and just lit him up. <laughs> and he was so mad, but like he kept, kept himself under control, but everybody was kind of like, Oh man, you, you really hit him hard. Didn't you? And it was, it was a tackle game. So turkey wasn't like bowl I did anything is, wrong. I feel but, like man. a turkey bowl is always a good chance for everybody to practice the spiritual discipline of not getting very, very angry <laughs> because oh, you're going to play tackle football with a bunch of people that are not used to playing tackle football. And it's, it's, fun it's i good. remember playing one one year actually there's another story where the ball went up into like the tippy top of this pine tree that was right by the field <laughs> and it was my responsibility as the skinny young kid to climb up this pine tree like all the way to the top <laughs> like the winnie the pooh episode where tigger's stuck at the top and like get this thing down by the time i come down i was all scraped up and sticky and nasty and <laughs> but somebody punted it and it went very high so yeah, so I don't think we have any anything that's too special either. Except I'll watch every single football game until it's all done, and and uh, yeah, it's you know, a parade you eat turkey on Thanksgiving, an, guys. Are it's, you guys a parade family or non parade? Yeah, family? we're a parade family. Yeah. And then you know by that time, usually when it's over, the dog show comes on for like an hour before the first game usually starts. Yes. So we've yeah, caught episodes right. of that before, which yeah. is. You know, they all dogs always look the same. So it's like it's the same exact show every right. year because it's some perfect looking schnauzer that's going to like win. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, show dogs were never my, my thing. We always have, we, you know, our dog now is he's he's just a mutt. I think your dog is probably our dog is technically what's called a black mouth cur, which is what which is an amazing uh, old yeller was. Uh, so he kind of looks like that. What are some ways you'd liven up that event, Zach? How would you liven up the dog show to make it more interesting? I would I would much rather see a dog show of all just mutts. Because if you think about it like a a look, a purebred dog, somebody has put immense amounts of money and time and genetic warping into making that dog very <laughs> weird. But a mutt is kind of like, hey, look, you found a dog that just happened to be like this. And I think that would be kind of funny as you just see, hey, well, th- this dog ended up being nice and pretty and it was nobody's fault. That would be fun. <laughs> um, Nobody did this on purpose. It yeah, just no, happened other than that like way. bulldogs, which clearly all poor bulldogs, they don't, they didn't want to be that way. I have heard that they're now breeding bulldogs differently now, that it's not quite as bad as it used to well, be. Well, because it was getting to the point where they could barely like live in stuff like they can't breathe right yeah. like it's not good for them and don't they all have bad. to be born by c-section too i have also heard this so big? I, I love bulldogs this. though like english bulldogs are, are I've never so been much fun them. are they yeah they have one in in uh 
Peru. They have one at the Bible College down there. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's a lot of fun. And then my second cousin, who we were pretty close with their family, they had two. I've and never, so, I've never been around them, but and yeah. I went to, hey, I went to LCA. So our mascot was the Bulldogs. That is true. As, as is like every other Christian private school in this, the country for oh, some really? reason. There must be. I've, there's so many schools that are the Bulldogs. I wonder if it's like cheap to get the logo or something yeah. like that. You'd think that there would but, be all these other, op- not the, not the Angels or the. The Crusaders or something? I don't know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Crusaders. That, you might not be able to get away with that anymore. <laughs> Probably not now. It'd be pretty cool, though. To yeah, have the, it would have been The Calvary great. Chapel Crusaders. Uh-huh, yeah. I always thought that if we had our own high school or something, uh-huh. we needed to come up with a mascot or a university or whatever, we'd be the bullfrogs. <laughs> what? Because it's it's kind of cool. You don't really hear about it. Sure. And there's that old song about bullfrogs and butterflies. They've both been born again. And you can I get a mascot. Not familiar with yeah, that song. You don't know that song. No. How do you not know that song? Bullfrogs and butterflies—they've both been born again. Mm, okay. See, I, you don't. I, yeah. You're I'll not go. a Christian. You don't know anything. <laughs> I'll go look this but, up. But uh, because you could have a mascot that's like a big old frog, but you could have like horns, like actual bull horns on his head. Sure. And it, yeah. you know, it could be fun. Okay. And but anyway, we'll see if the Lord blesses us with that. Hey, yeah. You know, but everybody else seems to be the. The Bulldogs. I've seen quite a few of those. But anyway, uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today, no. although we do kind of like to open it up with some fun sometimes and kind of get us in the mood to talk about something serious. And what we're going to be talking about today, although we're a couple of weeks late, uh, we did have Reformation Day not that long ago. Yeah. So we know it in this country is Halloween. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> I was known as Halloween if yes. you're much less spiritual. October than us. <laughs> 31st, because uh, it was on All Hallows' Eve mm-hmm. when Martin Luther decided to post the 95 Theses to the church at Wittenberg, which is credited as the official beginning of the Protestant Reformation, right. which led us to where we are today. And uh, we could tell the story. We've done it before. But, I mean, in one sense, it wasn't quite the beginning of the Reformation. You had guys like Jan Hus that had tried to Mm -hmm. start this off. He was very influential, even though he was martyred. You had guys like Erasmus, Mm -hmm. who didn't leave the church like uh, the Reformers did, but was very sympathetic to the movement and kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the things they were going to do. was writing a lot of things that they picked up and ran with later. Yeah, yeah. and and also John Wycliffe in England, who was— uh, it was martyred also, I believe he was, but in any case, he was mm. uh, a, a, considered a forerunner of the Protestant movement, especially, right. uh, I believe, in wanting to translate the scriptures, among other things. So uh, we celebrate that mm. because this is an important thing that's happened. And even if, uh, you know, you look at the Catholic Church today has profoundly been affected by what happened during the Protestant Reformation. And before we dive into the subject of the day, Zach, I mean, we're... we're both history buffs, you have a degree in history. We like to look at things from that scale. Uh-huh. It is rather strange to me that, especially in this day where we're looking back on Western culture so much, we're looking back on the classics and we're wanting to uh, look at, you know, what makes our culture great. The Reformation just gets left out of this conversation so much. And there might be spiritual reasons for that. But I mean, have you noticed that, that we want to talk about the Enlightenment or we want to talk about the American founding, which are all important things the fall of Rome, but what about the Reformation, which is so important? The Renaissance, you know, is talked about, but not the Reformation. And I don't think you can explain any of these things apart from that. No, I totally agree with you. And and it's actually a lot of believers have asked that question all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who, you know, is my favorite. <laughs> um, he, he actually has written. You're very a co- unique in that respect. Yeah, I know. You, nobody else, nobody else C.S. likes C.S. Lewis. Have you ever heard about C.S. Lewis, guys? We're in a mood uh, today. Yeah, man. <laughs> I know. Oh, look out. Um, no, but uh, Lewis wrote a couple of times actually on how he thought that it was actually almost like religiously motivated how people would all write about the classical period, right? The Greeks, the Romans, everybody wants to write about the Renaissance, 
right? Which is, you know, oh, we're coming out of this, but, you know, we're coming out of this backwards age of religion, but nobody wanted to write about the Middle Ages, which was Lewis's, Lewis made his, you know, money as a scholar. Yeah, we should talk about that someday. Middle Age He said nobody wanted to write about the Middle Ages and nobody wanted to talk about like the Reformation. And Lewis's point was that really to him, he argued that all of the things that you think happened in the Renaissance actually happened in the Middle Ages. So his argument was, look, all the things that you're talking about of, about, well, you know, people were reaching back and preserving the classics. He said the church did that. Yeah, the monks in, were doing in the that. Middle Ages. The monks did that. If you don't, and have, they they sparked the Renaissance yes, too. By correct. the way, correct. So he said, you know, if you don't have the the church preserving classical thought and science and art and all these things, then you lose it in the yeah, Middle so Ages. So much for no art in the Middle Ages. I mean, the cathedrals exactly. were built in the Middle Ages. Yes. All the stained glass, those the illuminated pages of the of the Bible and, 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 and all that. You know, Lewis was talking in the fifties and forties about how it was already at the time a debunked idea that there was such a thing as the dark ages right and now we still hear people talking about that but this is this is true actually historically there's a lot of historians who've been saying for a long time actually guys that's kind of a meme like it's it's not it's an atheist meme yeah that, that's not is. really a thing that happened you you had what you had was a period of you know instability that was happening politically uh, say, uh, yeah cultural or social instability but the the but, light points in that area where all the churches where monks right. were preserving written you know work were preserving culture were were innovating and, and even that i mean like uh-huh. this is the time where you i mean things were being shifted around but this is where you had i mean knights and castles and, yeah, yeah. and all that that's part of that history right. know, this is when you had for better or worse you had the crusades this is when you had the holy roman empire this is when music began to be developed and but and, because we've got like, movies where everybody's depicted as covered in mud well, you yes. know, we just we just assume that that's how it was. T.H. White in in uh, the Once and Future King has a great that's little a section book, on actually. it. Yeah, which is about King Arthur. In case you guys don't know, and but he's got this great section on how it was an age of color mm-hmm. is what he talks yep. about, and he says the idea that you know he says we give children tours of castles now, right? And it's you know stark and it's gray and, and the it's you all know, rubble. There's and, no yeah. light and it's and it's like that's not how it would have looked right. then. Right. It, they would have painted it. They would have plastered. There would have been tapestries. There would have been stained glass. There mm-hmm. were ways to illuminate. That's why you see all the paintings. Everybody's wearing all these bright colors. Like think back to Sleeping Beauty. Like honestly, which was the style of that movie was based on right. the medieval colorings right. and drawings of this time. So um, all that to say that the Reformation was important. I think the reason that medieval times get overlooked and also the Reformation gets overlooked is because there is a vested interest that Enlightenment thinkers had Correct. to uh, ignore the religious things that had happened, that there was a spiritual transformation that took place, which affected the society profoundly. Uh, and, you know, people think, well, yeah, the, the idea of free inquiry. Well, do you think that could have come about without Martin Luther and, no, and those guys from. to smashing yeah. the what was exactly. the structure of the church at the time, and right. um, you know even the United States itself, you could say, is a product of the Reformation because yes. the people, the Puritans and my ancestors, and and the you know Thanksgiving's coming up, the Mayflower, they yeah. all fled uh, oppressive Protestant and Catholic countries to come to the America so that they could worship freely. What's the whole point? Is that we've had this. Protestant Reformation, we now know that it has to be by the word, it has to be by the Holy Spirit, it can't just be by fiat, but all these governments are still trying to do it that way. So we'll go to the wilderness where we can pursue God freely. So all of this, it's such an important time in history, and I don't much care for 
the the way it gets left out. You know, when you're going to talk about the classics and you're not going to talk about Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or John Knox, like if you, <laughs> the way that our governmental structures are, are based goes back to John Knox. So much of that. And oh yeah. Well, I, you can't even, I would argue that. that yeah, you can't even, let's even like, obviously it's, it's important for, for, religion right it changes the way that people yes and we will feel like churches can be organized and all that but even if you're just going to take it from a historical standpoint like you're saying you can't really discuss what happens politically in europe or in america without understanding the reformation you know you don't have you don't have big calls for personal religious freedom without the idea of the priesthood of all believers right you know that religious freedom was not a concept pre the reformation in the way that it is today and we can argue about whether that's all been good right and and maybe there's some arguments there but you've got to acknowledge that that's that is an innovation of the reformation for someone to say wait one minute i as and we'll talk about all this i as a a a person a a person who can read scripture first of all the idea that you as a person would read scripture that's a reformation idea right um so i'm going to personally engage with scripture and hear from god about what we should do and then i'm going to dissent Right? That's what the pilgrims were originally called, was dissenters. They yeah, well, were, the word Protestant. Right. Is, the word I'm for going protest, to protest, right? right? And I'm going to say, no, actually, I think that Scripture would lead us to do it in this different way to the point that I might even leave your church, which, again, we, we take this for granted, but, like, the idea of, no, I'm going to leave this church and go start a new one was completely groundbreaking. Yep. All of that comes from the Protestant yeah, Reformation. So individualism, you know, individual yes. liberty, like, that yeah. that sprang from the 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 seedbed of the reformation. Mm. So let's just give a quick summary of what this is here. We've talked about the history at length. There's some of the teachings on our website. If you look at the topical messages, I've done several reformation studies and there's other great guys that have done this, but uh, the church in the 1400s moving into the 1500s was impossibly corrupt. Mm. You know, we, we call it the Catholic church, but I mean, other than the Eastern Orthodox churches, there was no other church. It was, you know, this is when the division between Catholic and Protestant came. The, the classic one was the selling of indulgences, that the church was selling you forgiveness for sin. They were selling you uh, the way to get out of purgatory and everything cost money. And it was the church's way of uh, aggrandizing itself. It was no longer really a religious thing. It was a political player in the... Uh, the world at the time, Pope uh, Julius, who was the, the famous warrior pope that was you know leading armies into battle and mm-hmm. was trying to effectively become another state, a super state in Europe and the world at the time. And uh, Martin Luther was the man that began to study the scriptures. He's got a whole wonderful story, but he rediscovered this doctrine of justification by grace through faith, that the Bible doesn't teach that you're saved through the the good graces of the church. You're saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. Right. You're saved because Jesus was enough on the cross. And so he began to teach these things and they began to gain great traction. And it led to this amazing movement where the church was was sundered. There was a breaking that took place and it led to men like John Calvin, who was very much the the deep thinker of the Reformation. Luther had the kind of the initial radical ideas. John Calvin developed these things. You had men like Zwingli that applied these things more politically. You had guys like John Knox that would fight for them a little stronger. I mean, there was so many great men that we could talk about here that there's always negative things you can say about these guys. But I mean, it's one of those, have a little respect for the men that God used to do this. So, I mean, Zach, anything else you want to chime in on just kind of what this was before we move on to the subject of the day, the Reformation? No, I mean, I I think, yeah, it's it's important. I I just, 
It's important to know where some of this stuff comes from, too, to understand the Reformation, that it was that they were innovations. I just finished reading this book by Tom Holland, who's actually a really good, he's not a believer that I'm aware of, but he's a very good historian of this period, and he's very, in my experience, he's very honest and fair when he talks about these things. And I read a book... The, Tom Holland. I always think of the guy who plays Spider-Man. Not that guy. <laughs> it's a different guy. Um, not Spider-Man, the, the historian. Um, and he wrote a book about the, the period in the Middle Ages right around 1000 uh, AD. And I, and this is just showing my ignorance, but he was explaining how a lot of the things that we think of as classic Catholic doctrines that were pushed against in the Reformation, for example, the sale of indulgences, the um, you know paid viewing of, of relics. Right where you'd have, oh, this is the bone of the a saint, of and the you pope the authority of the pope, the um, uh, transubstantiation, sep- yeah, separate, um, separate, like cloistered orders where people would go to have these different experiences. Then you would go make a pilgrimage because supposedly only at this convent or this monastery there's some special thing going on spiritually. All of these things were innovations that occurred right around 1000 during a period where everybody was discouraged about the state of the world, about the state of the church. There was a bunch of millennial, I mean, literally, right? People were wondering, is... (laughs) The last millennials. (laughs) Yeah, people were wondering, is God going to come back? Is there going to be the end of the world? And the general people were so discouraged about the state of things that they were seeking out these alternative spiritual experiences. They wanted to be able to have this experience of, yeah, but I went and I touched this bone of a saint and that's important in some way. And the church at first was not comfortable with that because, you know, it wasn't biblical and it wasn't what had ever been done. But gradually they started to adopt these practices because the people wanted these experiences. So they basically gave in. Yes. And and the, the experiences became more. And it really, I'll tell you, Tyler, it reminded me so much of what we've seen in the last, you know, couple decades with the attractional movement in the church it was mm-hmm. it started as this thing of well how are we going to get the people in they're all they, they don't want to come and hear sermons anymore they don't want to come in here teaching but how are we going to secure the people's attention and well i heard over here at this monastery that everybody's going there because there's supposedly healings that are happening when they touch this you, you know bone or this thing and now i i think we've talked about this before i'm perfectly willing to believe that there were genuine miracles going on in some places I, of course yeah, god I, I, god absolutely. loves his people and he works through you know how he's going to work but what happened is even with these genuine signs or things that were happening, people would start trying to co-opt that because they knew it would attract people and literally money to their church or their region. So they would start saying, well, how are we going to get them in? Well, if they've got relics, we need some, how do we get some relics? They've got, you know, they've got a convent where these people can pray for you around the clock. How do we get one of those? And and, and it became this attraction model. This is an important thing to note. And I I think, if I remember correctly, Eric Metaxas in his biography of Martin Luther, which is very good. It is a good, it's 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 very good. good. He does a really good job of explaining this point that Zach's been laying out. That is a very common objection from Catholics towards Protestants. Mm. Uh, They'll say, well, you were throwing out years and and thousands of years of church tradition. But we weren't. That's not the case. What it's not the case. It's called a reformation for a reason. Luther and Erasmus and all these guys, that what their whole point was all these doctrines that were we're trying to take away are, were innovations. These were not original to the church. They came about only a couple hundred years ago. And if you say, well, why were they allowed for those hundred years? Because the the Pope and the, the leadership of the church had such a stranglehold on what could be thought and what could be said. It wasn't until a movement like the Reformation came about that was so insistent upon what the word says. 
and it's that important it to could know be, uh, it could be confronted and combated. So these uh, weren't that's a couple hundred, to remember. And it, these weren't a couple hundred years of church flourishing either. We're talking no. about you know the time between one thousand and fifteen seventeen, right? Is when Martin Luther finally says, "Look, I'm gonna you know here's a list of things beefs I have with all of this, right? Yeah, one hundred six years ago. Yeah, that we've five hundred six years ago. Right, sorry. right, right. So we've got like five hundred years of some of the most corrupt years that the church has ever seen. I mean, we had popes who were who were living like outwardly known abject licentious lifestyles. Pope, there were starting to be jokes about how many children the popes had. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are supposed to be celibate, but like right. how, how many how many children the popes had? How there was there was all this just horrifying things going on in the Vatican, or even among priests. Like it started to be a joke about the the, the priests and I their mean, lifestyles. Read, even if you read Chaucer, it's like yes, the, right, right. Exactly. Everybody kind of wink, wink knew what was up, right. And and so that the corruption was going on in step with the proliferation of these new innovative doctrines right. the more that you know so it's it, it's exactly it's it was uh, I, th- I think you know and i want to get on to our next subject here but mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's important to remember that the corruption of the church was a result of the church no longer being what the bible defined the church as yes you know you read through the new testament and what what resemblance does that bear to the catholic church at the time of, of the reformation it's and you could say well times change and yeah that's true but what wh- where in the bible does it describe this this royalty in the in the church but anyway th- this is all to summarize for you just briefly here that the the reformation happened and on october 31st we commemorate that and we're going to talk about not the reformation itself today but here's the point that i'll say to to move us along I'm sure you've seen the title of this episode, so you know what this is about. (laughs) I am a Protestant pastor. Yeah. Because I believe that the Reformation was a good thing. Mm. I do not, (laughs) I do not quibble on that. Mm. Like, I'm not going to have a a reasoned debate. It's like, no, this was the right thing. It happened. It was good. Luther, Calvin, these were not just men of God. They were prophets that God raised up in the church. I agree with you. I I hands down believe that. I was raised in the Protestant church. I'm still in the Protestant church, and I am never going to leave the Protestant church, even though that is a much looser definition. I have no intention of becoming Catholic. I am not a Roman Catholic. Zach, you are not either. That is correct. Yeah. No uh, no surprises here, guys. I'm not a Roman Catholic, and neither is Zach. And when you talk about Christianity, this can be one of those touchy subjects yeah. because you have Catholics and you have Protestants and there's a long history of animosity between them, some of which we just described. It's been 500 years and there's been, you know, different squabbles and conflicts, you know, even as recently as the last century in Ireland. A couple and, big wars. Yeah. And, you know, 30 years war, all this stuff is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm going to talk about today and what we're going to talk about today is, is why I am not a Roman Catholic. And the reason we're going to frame it like this is because it's such a, an iffy thing to talk about, the Catholic Church. Because the, con- the question that I get all the time is, Tyler, can you be Catholic and be saved? Mm-hmm. And the short answer is yes. But here's the long answer. Because, well, the short answer, here's the medium answer first. Because <laughs> salvation is by grace through faith in right. Jesus Christ. Right. And if you're going to place your faith in Christ Jesus, you will be saved. That That's that's that. And there are Catholics who are born again. I, I do not doubt that. Yeah. However, right. I absolutely believe that the Catholic Church is riddled with all manner of problems and false teaching. I think they have the right things right 
meaning they still believe in Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose again on the Thursday, third day, not on Thursday, rose again on the third day, will return again. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the Bible. Like those things are are the essentials, but it's all this extra stuff that's brought alongside to where can somebody be saved and be Catholic? Yes, but I would never recommend anybody who is saved to remain within the Catholic Church. Or, nor would we recommend anybody who is, you know, if you're listening now, and I understand if you're there, right? If you're listening now and you're saying, well, look, I just got saved and this seems like it's the, you know, the oldest and the most beautiful expression. This is all what's talked about publicly, right? It's the most beautiful expression of Christianity and it's it's the it's the mother church. It's the original. And you're, you're wondering, is this what I should do? I'm not Catholic now, but should I become Catholic? In the same way, I would encourage you, no. No, and here's some, And here's some reasons why we feel that that's not a decision that you should make. Right. And I'm going to, I'm saying all this like this, with this tone. I'm trying to be uh, firm, but also kind here because... I do think we ought to be charitable on this issue. Of course. Uh, I do think that we ought to be kind and we ought to be loving. However, I'm not Catholic and I don't recommend you be Catholic either. And I think it's, it, this is a profound disagreement that we have, I believe, within the church. Yes. But I will say this. I have a, I would have a very hard time disagreeing with somebody who believes very strongly that the Catholic church is beyond hope. I don't mind saying that Mm. because all the reasons we're going to talk about today and when you lay them out, here's what I'll say. We're going to look at all of these things and there's 10 points we're going to look at today. Um, If a church tomorrow were to open up down the road doing these things, we would not tolerate it for a second. No. We would not. And I, I do not believe that because somebody is Catholic that they are of necessity saved any more than I would believe somebody who is a, well, I'm a Baptist should be saved. But the, these are false doctrines and false teachings, and I feel very strongly about them. And what it concerns me, Zach, before we started getting our list here, is culturally, as we are trying to restore morality, mm. fight against abortion, fight mm-hmm. against transgenderism, wokeness, as we're trying to restore that that religious core, many people are holding up the Catholic Church as the answer to this. <laughs> yes. And I, I think most famously guys like uh, Robert Barron, guys like Michael Knowles, uh, I think if I may say so respectfully and kindly, it, a lot of conservatives who are not particularly religious, especially those who are Jewish, mm. see the Christian manifestation as Catholic, that we're going to, well, the, the Catholic Church, that's that's Christian. When, first of all, that's not the American way. That's not even most or even close to the majority of Christians in the United States of America. Right. And we need to be able to stand on this and say why, because I, a revival of Catholicism in America, I think, would be a catastrophe. And we're going to explain that. I mean, yeah. you see this culturally. This is one of the reasons we want to talk about this. I think a lot of this. it just comes from ignorance. It's, it's, it's well, that looks old and, and historic <laughs> and there's crosses everywhere. And yeah, that's... I've you seen know. TV, you know? Yeah. Well, and also it's, it's, it is primarily the depiction of Christian religion in media. So when you think about, you know, what are some, what are some, you know, Christian characters you can think of, even in popular, oh, well, well, Nightcrawler, you know, an X-Men, Nightcrawler is a, a Christian. Yeah. Night, Nightcrawler is Catholic. Right, so like, it, it just immediately the the d- default is well, we need a Christian character. All right, we'll give him a you know, give him a cassock and and a and a you know and, and a yep. collar and, and a make, crucifix, make and make him a, a Catholic priest. Holy and, water, yeah. And so you know, and again, I think some of that is just I'll, I'll be I'm being kind when I say this, I think it just comes from ignorance. I think a lot of people who are not Christian they see this as the most easy 
way to signify Christianity to an audience that they're trying to explain something to. But I think a lot of it also comes from, and we're about to get into this list, so I don't want to jump the I think it's the most palatable for people who don't agree with us. I think this is one of the ways that people can say, oh, well, but the Catholics, they're nice. You know, they're, they're nice and they're, they're, they do your rituals for you. And yeah. And, they, you there's a, and I, I think there's, they, they don't, it is considered high status. Yeah. I'll even maybe go there. It is considered a high status way to be a Christian. Yes. And it's respectable. Yes. It's respectable. High church has always been more respectable than, than low right. church, which of course we are here. And, and there's some reasons why, um, we can even talk about that distinction. I think it's even finer a distinction than, you know, there are, there are high church Protestants that I, we could also do a whole thing on why we're not high church Protestant, right? Well, um, it's going to be a lot of the same reasons we're yes, talking it, about yes, today. Yes, it will. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's just because I think there's that feeling of, and you see this with the young people now. I want to be, I know that I need to be saved. Or maybe I don't even know that. I, I know I need to be religious. I know I need to be tied to something historical and bigger than me. So I'm going to pick the version of that that is most culturally respectable, most culturally understood. And seems the most religious to me. Yep. When and, you and might, would you might say that religion is exactly what you don't want. You right. want to chase something that is. You know, it's really funny to me that a lot of the people that talk about, you know, we need Christianity, not, you know, relationship, not religion. And then the next breath, they're talking about how, you know, I've really been really interested in Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. <laughs> what but, do you think that so is? So last, last yeah. disclaimer I'll give here, guys, is I know a lot of you, and even many in our church who are former Catholics, mm. have family that are still Catholics. And some of you might still have very positive feelings towards the Catholic Church. I, I don't want to try to take that away from you, but what I do want to do is point out some of the very profound problems with the Catholic Church. For sure. Explain to you why I'm not a Catholic, and I think I have good reasons for that, but I will also throw this out there. Some of the most virulent anti-Catholic people I know are people who used to be Catholics. Yes. That's they, correct. They, they, yeah, they don't even like well. us saying as many disclaimers as we've said here. Like, no, just get in there and rip it, Tyler. And, right, right, right. And we're going to do that, but I wanted to put all this out there that... I believe that there can be born-again believers in the Catholic Church, but I would question why they stay there. If you're going to be devoted and committed to the Word of God, as written, uh, I'm. it makes me confused. And with and as many problems as the Protestant Church has, we don't have these problems, and, like and we we're said, going to talk about them here. Like we said before, a lot of these things we're going to talk about, we're talking about Catholicism. I'm trying to look at our list now we have on this whiteboard, <laughs> just behind the scenes. But I, you know, we're talking about here Catholicism as it has occurred before, directly before the Reformation and post the Reformation. Yeah, I, I'm intending to mostly talk about it today, like right. as it stands like now. Pre one thousand, and this is important because a lot of people say, "Well, we don't study church history because that's all Catholic." Well, yes, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yes, friend. It's like yes, friend. Before 1000 AD, especially there was only one church. And God used that church mightily. It's the early church, right? Yeah. So so you don't have to, in order to be clear about what is going on with the Catholic Church now, or even during the time of the Reformation, you don't have to somehow throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is God used the Catholic Church, especially in the early days, to for miracles to occur, for the, the spread of the gospel, for the Christianization of the world. Those are all good and fine things. What we're talking about is the unfortunate corruption of what had happened, that the Lord's, it, what the Lord began and what the Lord moved forward, man le left and went after other things. That's right. what we're talking it's about. It's amazing what the Lord will do in the name of Jesus, even among those that are are adding oh. all sorts oh, of other absolutely. garbage to it. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> this might not seem very nice, but I would compare some versions of the Catholic Church to the kings of Israel that served the Lord but didn't tear down the high places. Mm-hmm. 
Oh no, I think that's know, a the good Lord, yes. Yeah, the yeah. Lord allowed that to continue, but he that was eventually the reason why he judged them. And I do believe that the Reformation was a judgment upon the church. Mm-hmm. Oh and, yes. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. we think the Reformation was a good thing. We are not Catholics. We are Protestants. We are full of love, but we're going to explain to you why we are and why we are not Roman Catholic. We got ten reasons that we're going to look at today. Um, which, looking at our clock, that leaves us about six minutes for each one. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, <laughs> this might be a double episode. <laughs> we'll make up for the one that we missed. Yeah, this could have been a series, but yeah, it's true, not. So true. let's let's start with the first one, and and we're going to try to give these in some kind of logical order. But the first reason why I'm not a Roman Catholic is because the Catholic Church elevates tradition equal to the level of the scriptures and even above the level of the scriptures in right. some cases. They say, well, you have the Bible and that's that's good, but the Bible is interpreted by the church. And in fact, the, the church's interpretation are primary in many respects to the Bible. Yeah. It's, I believe it's called the magisterium. Is that right, Zach? Yes, that's my understanding. Um, and, and, and again, t- uh, the reason we would oppose that is, it, again, this, is, this gets back to one of the fundamental points of the Reformation is sola scriptura, Right, along with sola fide and all mm-hmm. those other, you know, the, the sola scriptura was this idea that no, you can be a Christian with only God's word. You yeah. don't need anything it's else. The, the establishment of doctrine comes from the Bible yeah. alone. You don't need anything else. You don't need to refer to, you know, what we're called, you know, the doctors of the church, meaning like doctor, like a, a, a PhD, right? Like, like the, Thomas Aquinas. Yes, all these people that, the well, here, I will come in and it will be my job to tell you what the interpretation of scripture is. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the magisterium. That is the Catholic Church's idea that there is a correct interpretation, and it is the interpretation of canon law and the, and the doctors of the church. It's the interpretation of the Catholic Church is the one that you may have. Now, you hear that and you go, wait a minute, but there is a correct interpretation. And mm-hmm. doesn't the Bible tell us to hold on to sound doctrine? And doesn't it tell us to rebuke what's false? Yes, that's true. But here's where the cart comes before the horse now, is where, yes, the church is the is the holder and the determiner of the proper interpretation of scripture. What this amounts to though is if the church says it it's true. Right. And it doesn't matter even if the Bible opposes that. And this was the debate that that Luther and the guys had is like but all these traditions that you're saying are part of canon law you can't prove them from scripture. Right. The things you're doing are indefensible biblically to which they would say well the church interprets scripture. And and there was no mechanism for the the tradition to be investigated and tested against the or word corrected. of god or corrected once once something had made its way in there was no because the, the you know the catholic church itself was the arbiter there was no self correction mechanism of well wait a second guys we now we've we've decided that it's okay to have relics now we've got all these relics everywhere now guys are inventing fake relics to collect money now it's a whole industry maybe we need to take a look at this and see if it's biblical that was not happening and and, and because of that what happens is that tradition accretes year on year just like right. any it tradition it builds on itself so yes. now you're not interpreting the scriptures anymore you're interpreting the tradition with more right. tradition and if that that's true than this and if that's true than this and if that's true than this but you go back to the original foundation which is the scripture and you might be teaching something crazy that jesus said in matthew 15 9 of the the hypocrites and the mm. pharisees he said in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men yep that's so important to know you guys jesus said that when you start teaching as doctrine as the word of god the word of men your worship is in vain so you look at something like the the Trinity, for example, and many people, well, that isn't the Trinity. 
old Catholic doctrine and the proper interpretation. And this is why certain oneness groups and everything, Jesus only Pentecostals, for example, say, well, we don't want that old Catholic doctrine. We want something new. But the, here's the difference. You can take the doctrine of the Trinity and test it against the scriptures and right. it absolutely bears up. Right. You cannot do that with the supremacy of the Pope or the exaltation of Mary. You, right. you simply can't do that. But any tradition, this is the Protestant position, any tradition is subservient to the Bible. And you guys say, well, I'm sure Catholics believe that too. They don't. Right. That the magisterium is is co-authority with the scriptures. And I want to be clear, guys, when, when we say that Catholics elevate tradition to the level of the word, that is not a... That's not an accusation. No, no. We're, we're not, we're not, that's not our interpretation of Catholicism from the outside. We are repeating Catholic doctrine. Yeah. To the best of our knowledge and understanding. And I have studied this. We, we are repeating what they say about tradition, that tradition, like you said, is co-equal to scripture, that the two of them stand as the two pillars of the church. And so we, we, we're just simply repeating their understanding and we disagree. Yeah. And that that's, so why am I not a Roman Catholic? Because the Bible is our foundation. Right. And I believe in an appropriate place for tradition, but always subservient to the word of God. Right. So this would be a minor matter depending on where it went. But after thousands of years, you see where that idea yes. has taken you. You've tested this idea and we see where it leads to. And it leads to purgatory and, and relics and it leads to the idolatry of mass and all, all manner of things. And that's what things. Catholics will say. Well, everyone has liturgy. Everyone has tradition. And they're right. And and I'll say this here to, to my Calvary Chapel guys. Hey guys, liturgy isn't a dirty word and tradition isn't a dirty word, right? Like, yeah, Calvary Chapel has a liturgy. We have th uh, four, three to four songs and then we have announcements and then we have the teaching and then we say goodbye. That is a liturgy, right? So there's nothing... It's an informal liturgy. Very, but there's nothing the matter. It's not that, you know, yes, we of course we have traditions. Everyone, every church has traditions. The difference is, are you allowing your tradition to be viewed interpreted and corrected by scripture or are you using your tradition to do that to scripture right that's and, that, the and that's effectively what takes place is, right well i know the bible doesn't say that but this is what we have decided therefore right. this is how the bible must be interpreted right. even though through good principles of bible study you would never arrive at you would never arrive at the conclusion that mary was immaculately conceived by the holy spirit ever no if you just read the bible you have to arrive at that later and and Tradition is fine so far as it goes, but the principle is that tradition is always subservient to scripture. I think Jesus makes that abundantly clear. Yeah. And the Catholic Church holds those two things as equal to each other. And when you do that, we all know good and well which one is going to give when push comes to shove. And we'll see as we continue down this list that a lot of these come out of, once you make that assumption that tradition can be equal to scripture, all of a sudden, all of your traditions, it's a very, it's a very neat way to say, yeah, you don't get to question me on any of this. Well, yep. where, where do you find that in the book? Doesn't matter. We said it, right? And all of a sudden, all of these weird things come out and you say, well, where did this come from? That doesn't make sense. Oh, it's tradition. It's from our tradition, which is equal to scripture. Yeah. Never mind the Bereans who were noble because they went home and they tested everything that Paul said right. against the, the word of God. And, right, right. and I mean, first John, do not believe every spirit, but test all things. Mm. Right, that everything must be evaluated and and checked against the scripture, not against you know tradition. So that's that's an important point, and that's that's actually you could even say the point in a lot of ways. It's foundational. Your authority structure is different, and there's something plus the Bible, even something as as good and noble as the traditions of the church. 
they got to be checked sometimes, guys. And this is why, you know, one of the, the uh, slogans of the Reformation is Semper Reforma. It's like we are always reforming. We are right. always coming back to the scripture to test things. And there's pitfalls with that, too. But I think that that principle will be a, a safer guide moving forward. There are better right. pitfalls than the ones that come from not checking on your own tradition through scripture. All right, so let's move on to the next thing. And the next thing we're going to talk about is actually the the liturgy itself. We're going to talk about mass for a second. Mm. This is something that John Knox spoke about quite a bit, what he called the idolatry of mass, which is, you know, mass is the, the what we would call the communion service, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever it is. And uh, for the Catholic Church, it is not merely a memorial, nor is it merely just something that God mysteriously and mystically uses in his church for various purposes, but that it is essentially a magical ceremony where the body and uh, the bread is transubstantiated, transformed into the blo- the body of Jesus, and the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. A recapitulation. And, the, the priest is almost repeating the sacrifice. Yeah, that, that's, not almost. That's I mean, the that's other what, piece. Yeah, that's what that they it teach. It is the sacrifice. It's the altar. Why is it called an altar? Because that's where the sacrifice is being right. being made. Which that's problematic in and of itself, because the Bible says Jesus was crucified once for all, one right. sacrifice for all time. So even if you want to say, "Oh, that's just." the language we use it's not they believe there's something profoundly spiritually sacrifice going on right then that means that jesus's first sacrifice wasn't enough and that there's some sort of incantation that the priest makes over the bread and the wine that allows it to become you know they, they say well no it's still wine but the essence the substance of it what kind of like we talk about the substance or mm-hmm. the essence of god has been changed into the literal body and blood of jesus and that that itself has a miraculous grace giving power Right. to you and that there's there's you even like the the legends of like vampires and things like there's a power in the bread because it's the host it's the mm-hmm. it's the body of christ that's why you can't throw away the bread you put the bread into the little basket where people will then come and worship the bread because the bread is the body it is literally the body of christ and right. so you know it's, it's not idolatry because we're worshiping christ but what it amounts to is idolatry of mass. And this is something John Knox in particular preached against. And uh, this is something also that some of the reformers had disagreement about, but I don't think there's any question about the fact that, you know, we can disagree about what exactly is this, but I can say, but it's not that. Yeah. And (laughs) it's it's important to realize too, because I, you know, this is one that some people I think struggle with. Like, look, I understand because we, if the Catholic Church swung way too much toward this mystical, magical, you could even say superstitious way of looking at a lot of things in Scripture. Superstitious is fair. Yeah, I think, right? We we It's very fair to look at it in the modern church and say, we've swung way too much in the other direction. Would, is that fair? Is it fair to look at, you know, the, the modern church and say, well, we're too clinical, too too scientific, too rational. We, we look at mi- true miracles and say, eh, the God doesn't do that anymore. We look at the Holy Spirit and say, eh, we don't need him anymore. We, we, we don't emphasize in the way that we should the supernatural. So I understand why it might be attractive or even logical for someone to say, no, Christianity is about the supernatural, about the, 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 about things that are beyond what we are used to seeing. So therefore, doesn't this make sense? The the struggle Christian is, Christianity isn't just about all supernatural things or any mystical thing that you like. It's about the specific things that God has told us. We have scripture to tell us in a supernatural world where many things happen, what it is that we should be looking for and what we should expect. Right. right. So we can't just we can't just grab onto anything that feels spiritual or feels mystical and say that it's good because of that. 
The, yeah. yeah, there are lots of just because that, it seems more spiritual doesn't make it better. Exactly, you got to look at what the the word says. Now, what they'll come at you. This was Martin Luther's famous point, and you know we don't agree with him on everything either. But right. he said Jesus said, "This is my body." Mm-hmm. When he entered, so well, how do you get out from under that? And the, the short answer is that Jesus was using a metaphor. Right, uh, he's saying this represents my body, and uh, Jesus also said things like, "I am the door." <laughs> you, you right. know, I, we don't see. Yeah, we don't exactly. believe Jesus is a door, and right. well, that's that's pushing it. No, no, it's not. It's the same he says, thing. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and and like, well, see, if you're not eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but okay, but what is salvation? What when there's a didactic passage that is not mysterious and clouded in parable like that? How are we saved by grace? Through faith. Right. Now, Paul does make it clear that it is similar to the idolatrous worship where they're having communion with their false gods, these demons. Paul says the table of the Lord is having communion with the Lord. And we believe that, but that does not necessitate that there is a magical transformation happening. All our communion with the Lord is through the Holy Spirit and through faith. And it's not that this is not a profound, beautiful, even mystical thing, if you want to call it. Sandy Adams, I stole that from him. He loves to say, this is not just memorial and it's not magical. We believe this is mystical. It's I great think that's a great way right? to put it. Yeah. But when you, when you get to the level of, I'm going to speak these words right. and the host is going to become right. the body and blood. And then you will come and you will take it. And then we will take the leftovers and place it in a basket and you will venerate and worship and light candles and bow down before this it's idolatry yes it's repeating the sacrifice of christ it's placing something that is supposed to be a remembrance and a and a coming together of the church you're separating now the the clergy and the and the laity and if you don't get this from me then you cannot be saved and there's there's power in this thing and it's it's the it's the rankest superstition power that can be withheld by the way right we can can i'm not going to give this to you i'm not going to give you your last rights and therefore you might not be saved we can bar you from the Table, we can bar you from the table, which means we can withhold the means of grace from you. And, that, and I'm not, and I'm not just that's, attacking that's again. Say. This is literally what happens, or has happened many times. Now, and so again, guys, and you know, I would also argue when you, especially on this point, be very careful when you talk to somebody, especially if they're from the Catholic Church. When you discuss this with them, don't don't put yourself in the position like an atheist would, right, or an unbeliever would of mocking something spiritual. They, they they are, you know, I I believe with you that they are confused and 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 misled on this point but don't ever i i don't like hearing protestants i'll just say this i don't like hearing protestants start saying things like that's you're so stupid why would you believe that it would literally become well hang on guys we are people who believe weird things as christians right so don't start don't start that mental process in your mind of that's so dumb and superstitious that you would really believe that some well look we believe i believe that god has healed my body before like in a way that is unique and spiritual. I believe that God answers prayer. I believe that the Holy Spirit causes people to speak in spiritual tongues. I'm not, I'm okay with weird. I'm just not okay with something that is contrary to what scripture says. So talk about it in a kind way that, that talk about it in a kind and humble way that remembers that it's not wrong because it's weird. It's wrong because it's not what God told us happens. Right. And and it's important. And it is, and, and the thing is, when you're dealing with somebody that's been in this their whole life, there is a lot of superstition that goes along yes, with it. Because is. if what if I don't get this? What if they're wrong? And it's like, right. is that what Jesus died for? To have right. us be scared to death that I'm not going to get to? It's, you know, you read the New Testament, and if, if mass is as important as it is said, you'd think they'd talk about it a little more. Right. 
It's in there a lot. It's one of the traditions we have. Mm-hmm. But the Lord's tables in, in all throughout the New Testament. Yeah, but it's not it's not to the level it's described here. And and I've already gone through it. So why am I not a Catholic? Because of the idolatry of mass. I don't believe in, in that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe you'd ever come to these conclusions simply by looking at the scriptures. Right. Which, this is all tied. We talked about how the, these means of grace can be withheld. This is tied to our third point. Uh, why am I not a Roman Catholic? Because of their theory of the atonement. Because of the theology of what the cross did. Right. What did Jesus do on the cross? To yes. make us at one, that's what atonement means, an old English word, in order to bring us at one with God. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? The Roman Catholic view of this is that Jesus Christ died to forgive all your sins. He's going to wipe out the blank slate. Everything behind you is good. Then he will send you the Holy Spirit whose job will be to help you do as many righteous works as you can in order to earn, functionally, your Mm -hmm. salvation. Mm -hmm. And what will happen, I will talk about this point in just a second here, but if you're unable to to earn it enough, if, you know, the the balance isn't quite what it needs to be, then after death, you'll have to pay off the rest of it. But... uh, it's right. you you are still saved by works but it's Christ who empowers you to do those works and that is a, a catastrophic misunderstanding of what the bible says yeah the, my understanding of the way that the doctrine is phrased by the catholic church is that they talk about what's called the treasury of merit which means that like imagine that there's a box right filled with gold and that box is Jesus Jesus Christ's righteousness Right. And already I have problems with this, right? Because Jesus's righteousness isn't some limited thing that he doles out to us. It's un, it's unlimited, complete perfection. Therefore, mm-hmm. you, anyway, so, so he, the, the, here's this treasury of merit. And by dying, Jesus has opened the lid to this treasury. And now he's given the keys to the treasury to the church. And now the church disperses this treasury of merit to you, right? Now, th- that sounds great, right? But here's the problem. If you read Hebrews and Romans and all these other places in the New Testament, that metaphor is fundamentally flawed. (laughs) The the treasury of merit is not a box that Jesus doles grace out from. The treasury of merit is like a a waterfall that he's pummeling you with from above. He's just given you everything. He said, now by my grace, you have access to, I mean, read Hebrews for crying out loud and first and second Peter, where it's like, no, you boldness to enter the holy place. Because why? Because now we are seen before the throne of God as Jesus is seen. Right. So this is the thing that was discovered, rediscovered by Martin Luther and others is that salvation does not come through your works. Because he read Romans. It comes through grace, through faith. The just shall live by faith. Right. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How exactly do you add or take away to that? That Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. This is the this is the Protestant way of understanding the atonement. It's called the substitutionary atonement. Right. That Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place. That the punishment that would have been given to all of your sins was given to him. And that the righteousness has then been imputed to you. Imputed righteousness. This comes from Romans chapter 5. I'll pull up the verse here. But where he says it has been reckoned to us Mm -hmm. as righteousness. Now, a couple years ago, uh, there's a guy named N.T. Wright, who maybe you've heard of, who was challenging this theory of the atonement. Uh, because he was believing in these these other ideas that basically amounted to no, you're you're saved by grace, and then you do as much as you can, and those works, that righteousness is what saves you. But uh, what he fails to acknowledge is that the Romans tells us that 
those things have been imputed or accounted to us yeah. as righteousness. And that's a, that's an accounting term that God is taking the righteousness that is of Christ and he's putting it over into your column. Romans 4, 22, talking about Abraham, it says, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word is legizomai. It can mean credited. That's what righteousness is. It's given to you. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no threat of not making it in. The thief on the cross was told, today you'll be with me in paradise. This, yep. this idea that, well, Jesus did most of it, but it's up to you to earn the rest of and it. And this foundation. That undermines what Christ did. And this foundation causes massive problems downstream in your understanding. One of the biggest things that I taught when I talk to people who are ex-Catholics who have walked out of Catholicism is this overwhelming guilt that they constantly struggled under while they were in the Catholic Church. This feeling, and this is this is fundamental, by the way, to Martin Luther's story. His, oh, his yeah. the big reason that he basically almost said, killed himself. It, literally, times. yeah, and he just couldn't do it anymore. He's like, I cannot live anymore under this weight of anxiety and depression and guilt over the fact that I can't be righteous enough. He would come to his you know spiritual mentor and said, What do you want me to do? I can't be righteous enough. And interestingly enough, his mentor, who was a monk, basically kind of pushed him towards grace through faith by saying, look, dude, like you can't try hard enough. There's no way to do that. It's got to be from God. And that led Martin Luther to start reading in Romans and realizing, wait, he's he's right. In fact, <laughs> the church is very wrong. I, and I'll just say, this causes so many fundamental problems in the way that you walk out your faith. If you believe that being saved is like piling up enough good works on one side of the scale that it's going to overwhelm somehow your your depravity, then it changes your whole life. It changes your way that you interact with the Lord. It changes your prayers. It changes your way that you interact with other people. It changes what you see church to be. It turns the whole thing into this mechanistic, transactional thing of, I hope that I can come and scrape up enough grace off the table this time to deal with all of the bad stuff that I did this week so that I can make it to next week where I can again do that. It turns the transactional whole thing. Transactional is the, is the right word. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to confession, which yes. e even, you know, Bible says to confess your sins one to another, yep. but that system has been abused and everything else. But that's, I'm less interested in that issue as much as, well, I did these things. Okay, go say, say 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers. What are you doing? Well, you're going to build back up what you lost through sin. It's it's works, tithing, you know, getting married, you know, going through yep. that, that holy unction, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. It's these all things that you do in order to be saved. Now, James says faith without works is dead, but it describes works as evidence of a, of a transformed heart. Mm -hmm. And we do are we are still racing for the for the end when we're going to be rewarded in Christ Jesus. But the idea that you've got to do these things in order to be saved, it, it very quickly, you, you know, you might wonder why do we you know, why do we try to distinguish so much between works as evidence of salvation versus works to merit salvation, it's because of what happens in the Catholic All Church. All the difference. Because once you believe that the works merit your salvation, it becomes a system of do this, do this, do this, and that's exactly what you have. Yeah, and I'm, a, I'm a. This one might be the most important one. Not they're all important, but to me, I'm a grace maximalist man. I've, I've lived <laughs> in an environment, in a self-caused environment. I, I, I was being well taught. I grew up in a godly church. I grew up in a Protestant church. I was being well taught about what grace was, but I wasn't living that out in my life. I was acting like I had to stack up my work. 
works and I was miserable. Yep. It's and so I, easy to fall into this. And I won't, I will not stand for anybody teaching people that that's how they have to walk with the Lord. It's, it's so, it's so evil. And I'm going to use that word carefully. It's it, many people who teach us, they, they're not evil. I don't think, and I don't think they intend to mislead or harm people, but it is so clearly of the enemy to put people in a place where their relationship to the Lord becomes one of transactional hoping to work out their own salvation it is it is awful and and i don't and it's it's obvious to me why a person like martin luther would see this and just say no like i'm not doing this anymore like we we have to figure out what's wrong with this because it's it, the fruit is not of the spirit you know paul said by works of the law no man will be justified in his sight yep since through the law comes knowledge of sin yeah, and, gosh read hebrews and, read, and Rome, Rome, read romans these, 2 yeah. talks about how it doesn't have to be the law of moses it can be any law yeah. that you set up read galatians for crying yeah. out loud now here's what happens if you what happens if i'm i'm a christian but i'm not able to pay off all of the the deeds that i've done well that's yes. purgatory right you pay off through the depending on who you're talking to, the suffering slash the tedium and struggle of life after death until you've paid off everything that you've done, then you get to go your, to heaven. Your remaining sin is burned away through through suff- through extra suffering that Jesus didn't cover somehow. And this is one of the ones, by the way, that Martin Luther, it was kind of funny, actually, if you read through parts of the 95 Theses, he just kind of gets this one. He's like, where did we get this again? Like he just kind of shrugs. Yeah. He's like, I don't, wh- where did we, who came up with this? Like, yeah, he, it's not in scripture. There's yeah, nowhere. No. It's not even close in scripture. I mean, this is, this is our number four. Why am I not a Roman Catholic? Cause purgatory is made up. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah, and, frankly. And you, it had to come about because of the doctrine that we just described. Right. Well, what if you're not able to pay off right. enough of your, well, then is, they can't go to hell because they're, they're saved. Well, well then uh, they'll just have to pay it off. And there's also, you know, this belief in the, you know, the, this extra love of God. Well, he'll still let you figure it out and finish is it off. Is this where we and, want to discuss indulgences then? Because I feel like they go along. Purgatory and indulgences to me go along. Well, that that they, was, I don't, I, I don't believe indulgences are still done today, but no, th- I, that's where they came from was, well, if somebody's in purgatory, you give me 50 bucks. Now they're out and of purgatory. Actually, I will, I will I'll, disagree. I'll let your grandpa go to, go to heaven. I will today. disagree with you gently. I, they no longer do financial indulgences, but there are still what are called like, here's a plenary. Indul- in other words, if you perform this action, they're typically now prayers or, or some sort of good work. It, you receive from the church an indulgence, a, a guarantee that this sin or this amount of purgatory has been remitted. For you so that that, Jeez, that is still done like and, and what so this is why i want to bring this up is for so, a nominal fee yeah so course. do you understand do you understand this this system right back then this was financial literally and this is what one of the things that made martin luther see red this was the issue this was the tipping point yeah is that he realized that they were fleecing honest you know god loving hard-working people who wanted and this is this is what we talked about remember when i said that in 1000 these ideas started coming about because people wanted to experience the love of God. They wanted to know, they wanted to have a worshipful experience. And so they started asking for things that weren't good for them. Well, indulgences came about because people wanted to feel grace. They wanted to know, how do I know how that can I'm I be right? assured? Of how my can salvation? I know that I'm right with God? And the church started marketing that literally yep. by saying, well, I'll tell you how you can know that you're right with God. If you pay us this amount of money that you can't afford to pay or your grandmother, yeah, or your how kid can I know, who just died. How can I know that I'll see my child again? Oh, very well here, pay us this amount of money. And we'll guarantee we, the church, which has this treasury of merit will guarantee that they're now free from purgatory. And Martin Luther scathingly said, if you can do it, bust it open and give it to everybody for free. 
which yeah. which of course is a brilliant you know this is how you know that a guy's a prophet is he can just drop one of these one-liners where you're like oh that's actually perfect like and, and yeah. the lord used him i think to just rip this apart to say wait a second you're telling me that the pope sits on top of a treasury of god's free merit and is hawking it for money <laughs> yeah right now, and now this is it's awful and the short answer to this is guys there's nothing in the bible about purgatory no. it's nowhere there's no the soul or, or indulgences no, or none of no, that's no. there that only came about later well that's part of the tradition of the church but it's another one of those traditions where you you're telling me there's an intermediate state where people that are, have died in christ but they're not quite saved enough yet like if somebody invented where in this, the world do you yeah. find that if, if somebody, somebody invented this today, today you'd be upset but since it's old right and, and and honestly and i say this with love brothers and sisters who may be in the catholic church do your reading it's okay. Anybody Open who your comes, Bible and yeah, search the scriptures. Anybody who comes and tells you you shouldn't do that doesn't love you or your soul. It's okay to read. Like It's okay to read your Bible. It's okay to read history. It's okay to say, where did this come from? And, and a, a genuine person who loves you and your soul will encourage you to do that. Yeah. So why am I not a Roman Catholic? Because purgatory is found nowhere in the scripture and it leads to so many abuses. I'll just throw in one more sentence before we go to the next thing is very often when these things are debated, uh, a, a Catholic, whether it's a priest or whoever, will will not talk about the scriptures. What they'll say is the, the philosophical benefit we get or the psychological mm-hmm. benefit from believing in, in such a thing. I'm not interested in that. What did God say? Not what did God say? If he has said nothing to do with that, then get out of here. And also, you want to talk about psychological benefits. How about the psychological benefit I receive from knowing that Jesus Christ has made a complete sacrifice for my sin, and now I stand blameless before him without any need you know, yeah, that I, exalts like, Jesus, not me. Yeah, holy cow! Like that, that's Jesus has conveyed the ultimate psychological benefit to yeah. me, knowing that my sins are forgiven. Like not not that's having joy, to go baby. through. Joy yeah, and, peace. and and do you understand? This is by the way, so many of the things that people throw at Christianity. Uh, I I get very specific about this because I like history. Many of the things that people hurl at Christianity. Well, Christianity does this. Christianity does that. No, what happened was the excesses of the Catholic Church did that. You want to talk about the Crusades? There were men who were willing to walk to Israel from Western Europe and die in a place that they had never seen before because they had been promised that if you do that, I promise you, you'll enter heaven. That's that's how that's how desperate people were to experience the love and the grace of God, that they were willing to do that because the church traded. It's a, here, I'll make you a trade. If you go fight this war for us, and I'm not here to get into the morality of the Crusades today. I, I you know, that's another long conversation. I'm just telling you, that is where this leads, is people who will do literally anything to know that they're right with God. And that's, it's interesting that another reason why we need to know about the Reformation, because many of the people that criticize the church, you're right. It's like, you're criticizing the Catholic Church. You're criticizing the Pope. Right. I'm with you on that. That's <laughs> right. why I'm not there. Yeah, so exactly. the next thing, though, kind of related to that, um, is the veneration of saints. That the Catholic Church has a... A, I hesitate to call it a pantheon of saints, of people that are so godly, usually like the apostles and biblical figures, but also people throughout history, to whom you can pray to. Now, they'll say yeah. that you don't pray, but let's let me get through my explanation here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that you can pray to who will intercede for you, and they, they'll take special extra care of you. Uh, this patron saint oversees this, this saint oversees that. Yeah. And uh, so we'll end up with images of these saints. We'll have little keychains or little you know, statuettes of these saints that you can icons light and, candles and, to. Yeah. The Eastern Orthodox Church has icons and, and uh, that that's somehow okay because we're not praying to them. It's just like asking a friend to pray for you. Never mind the fact that this friend is dead 
and that you think that they are the holiest of the holy and that they have special authority over this area of your life and you bow down to them and you light candles to them and you lift up intercessory prayer to them. This is so obviously not okay in scripture and yet this is yeah. done everywhere, you guys. This <laughs> is so yeah, not okay. You know, and it, it's not. And and I I even take issue with, look, if you have to have a, a official, do- and this is why I push back against things with Catholics all the time. So you, I, I ask a question about the official doctrine. Okay, so the official doctrine teaches that it's right to, or, or, or forget the official doctrine. I see Catholics praying to saints. That doesn't seem right to me. Explain it to me. And they say, well, you have to understand. And then they give me a folk explanation. Right. You have to understand. I know that looks weird and aberrant and strange, but you have to understand this is how we understand it. Well, here's an idea. What if we just don't do something that we would have to explain by some kind of folk understanding? Well, if you tilt it this way and look at it, it makes sense. It doesn't, though. I wouldn't. Right. Tyler, what if again, let's 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 just use a what if. What if you came into my house and above my dinner table, I had a lovingly rendered painting of my pastor, Tyler Warner. And before our <laughs> now maybe Tyler would love this I don't know but before our before Just our get my dinner good side. that's right before <laughs> our dinner we all let's turn around and let's you know genuflect we're going to bow down a little bit just to respect we respect pastor tyler he's a wonderful man he's done so many godly things and we're going to ask pastor tyler is our kind of patron saint you know of the home so we're going to ask that he just put in a good word for us with god it's just like asking a friend to pray for you is that just like asking a friend to pray for you, though? No, it's not. It isn't. And and the, and here's the thing. Also, even uh, let me even say this pastorally, guys. What I will sometimes say when someone will come and say, "Hey, Zach, could you pray for me?" I'll say, "Hey, have you prayed about it?" Because okay. there's nothing special. You don't about, need extra intercessors. No. You have Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's nothing we'll, we'll special about my in, prayer. We'll hit that more in a minute when we talk about Mary. But yeah. you don't need an extra mediator, guys. No. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Christ is in you. Yeah. And if you are in Christ, Jesus said, then ask in my name and you will receive it. Remember when Peter went to Cornelius's house? Peter, man. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. Peter. And he, Cornelius fell at his feet and Peter said, stand up, man. I'm just On this a man. rock, I'm I built my a, church, Peter. I know. And he says, I'm yeah. just a man. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a man. Look at this in, in Luke chapter nine. This is at the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John see Jesus transfigured. Moses and Elijah are standing there beside him. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So when Peter was tempted to not only venerate Christ, but to venerate Moses and Elijah as well, the Lord stepped in and said, don't do that. Pay attention to my son, Jesus. That is exactly what is being done in in these churches. It's idolatry. And I'll tell you what else it is. It is accommodation to pagan cultures Familiarity with having multiple gods, with polytheism. Oh, very frequently it becomes. Oh, this is uh, Diana, the the goddess of this, and and Lucifer, the goddess of that, and and Ares, the god of war, and so so the the god of the silversmiths, and all that has been replaced by these these saints. Well, they're not real gods, but we still venerate that you're doing the same thing. You're committing the sin that God warned us against sinning. And it becomes more extreme the further you go out from Westernized cultures. That's true. It becomes more. Uh, what's the word? I'm sorry. Um, 
syncretistic yes syncretistic thank you so much in other words there's more blending there's more emphasis I've spoken to Catholics who've told me that there's more emphasis on these things the farther you get out into the the second and third world because oh well they they like these they understand these because they're used to having multiple gods you can't talk to the the God Almighty you have to talk to the the lesser gods and also I would argue too you're you're doing such a bad job as a pastor because we've spoken before and this is true of the Eastern Orthodox Church as well you know you go to Russia and you see some poor old Russian grandmother, you know, pay a little bit of money for a candle to set up in front of this icon of a saint. If you ask a, a genuine, good, God-fearing, you know, Eastern Orthodox guy, what is going on here? I say, oh, well, that's not, she doesn't understand. That's not how it's supposed to be. And it's like, right, but you're allowing her, she doesn't get your fancy d- description of this. She's doing, Your in fancy effect, vaudevillian tap dance around what you're actually right, doing. She's doing, in effect, something that's bad for her soul. And you've because you have failed to root out these dangerous doctrines in your church, you're allowing somebody to sin. You you yeah, should I mean, be going in and saying, no, no, no. Like, let's, hey, this is causing people to do this. Let's just stop doing Jesus this. Jesus said, or sorry, the Lord said to Moses, he said, thou shalt not make any graven image yeah, or worship other gods. No. No images, no gods. Why? Because you're going to start worshiping them. Yeah. And that is exactly what happens. You can, and, and you can, you can you're gosh. praying to a saint. Right. You're praying to somebody other than the Lord. Why would Jesus in John 14, 15, 16, I've opened up the way for you to pray in my name. Right. So the right, idea right, that right, you right. need another saint is problematic in and of itself. And that's why I'm not a Roman Catholic. But mm. the worst example of this, yes. number six, why I'm not a Roman Catholic is the doctrine of Mary, which has gone... It is functions like the saints, but has gone so far beyond that to a profound idolatry and goddess worship in the church. She's spoken of as the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. Which, by the way, is weirdly, not weirdly, is very specific language that's used in scripture to attack, yes. you know, the, the Israelite uh, you know, uh, idolatrous worship is you're, you're, you're making, what is it? Cakes. Making cakes for the queen yeah, of heaven. Yeah, making cakes for the queen of heaven and stuff. And, and so, but they, you know, She's seen the co-redemptrix. Yep, the she. Which yeah, is which let's, means let's like lay this out. you know. I mean, so so she. In other words, because of her position as Jesus' mother, she co-redeemed mankind. Her and Jesus together, which is which is I I just haven't even have trouble saying that out loud, man. Like that that's that's a that is a blasphemous doctrine. It I, is blasphemous to, to say that to say that to say that. Oh gosh, like that, that a human person who and and I will also say by the way just real quick before we really nail this we don't hate mary as well no, we love mary right well you know we don't mary was not, awesome yeah we're not sitting here like oh no mary's a wonderful probably one of the best but she's not a demigod right so so it's like you don't have to you don't have to hate mary to feel like that this is man this is spooky and blasphemous to begin putting her forward as somehow a participant in the act of redemption there's a painting in the ceiling of the uh, Catholic Cathedral in Trujillo, Peru, where I've been, and it's a painting on the ceiling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit crowning Mary, the Queen of Heaven. God says, I am a jealous God. I do not share my glory with another. To do something like that is is so messed yeah. up because they say, well, Mary, yeah. it yeah. began with the thought of, okay, is it appropriate to call Mary the God-bearer? That she, you know, sure. and, and it started out as a statement about Christ, <laughs> mm-hmm. because was Jesus Christ in the womb or was he not? And well, we, he was God in the womb. Jesus was God in the womb. He was God and man. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, but right. then hop, skip and a jump to, well, if she is the God bearer, then that means she's technically the mother of God, right? To which you go, okay, 
if you want to be technical, that's not a good term because what they'll say, well, Mary is the mother of God because don't you believe Jesus was God? It's like, yeah, but that's not where that stops, is it? It leads to, therefore, Mary, she couldn't have given birth to an immaculate child if she wasn't immaculate. So they believe that Mary was never, never sinned. She was born without sin because she could, which is all you're doing is backing up the incarnation. You're backing up the incarnation one step. So, so well, Jesus couldn't have been born into a sinful womb. Really? Because what the Bible says happens. That's literally the incarnation. You're describing the incarnation. That's that's the miracle. You're backing it up one step, which is why she's then venerated and worshipped. You've got uh, the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, which is less important, but it's still, I mean, it says that Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's just weird. Well, they're not actual. They were Joseph's previous children. It does not say that. It says they did not come together until after Jesus was born, which implies that they did come together as husband and wife. Nobody thought anything strange about the relationship between Mary and Joseph. No. And in fact, the last time we see Mary speaking in the Bible is in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. You know the last words that Mary says in John chapter 2 verse (laughs) 5? She says, do whatever he tells you. The last thing Mary said in the Bible is, do whatever Jesus tells you. And, and the last time we see Mary in the Bible is sitting in the upper room with the other church in the book of Acts, waiting to receive the power of the Holy Spirit alongside with everybody else. In Luke chapter 11, verse 27, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mama, Jesus. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus had the opportunity to exalt his mother and he deflected attention away from her onto everybody who could be like her. Of course. Guys, people, the Hail Mary is what we're asking Mary to pray for us. You're praying to Jesus' mother. It's goddess worship. The the literal words are Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. It denigrates Jesus within the structure of the prayer. Do you, yeah. see, do you see what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it's it, it, wrong, it, it, you guys. It, it, it responds primarily to Mary, says that she is the one who's full of grace. Like there's no prayer. Like as far as I'm like, where's the prayer to Jesus? Where's the prayer like about Jesus' grace, who Jesus is? Like it, it, yeah. And, the and idea it, that Jesus is somehow like a, a skin flint and, yeah. and, you know, he's a he's a hard guy to deal. But, you know, we talked to Jesus' mom. She's got, she's got an in with him. She you has know. Jesus' ear. I've heard it described as, oh, well, you know, if you talk to Jesus' mom, everybody loves their mom. I have Jesus' ear. Right, right, right. I'm in Christ yep. by the Holy Spirit. First yeah. Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah. You, you cannot add to that. It's it's so profoundly wrong. And, and then how it's lived out is every Catholic church has a statue of Mary where you light candles and bow down. It's idolatry, you guys. Mm-hmm. So why am I not a Catholic? Because of the doctrine of Mary. And if you're a Catholic and you love Jesus and you're born again, I pray that God would lead you to see that you are violating the oldest of commandments, which is to not worship any other God except for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that leads to number seven of why I'm not a Roman Catholic, and that's the Pope. There's this tendency that we've just been talking about of this, the, uh, the willingness to elevate people in the church, in the Catholic church, above the Lord, above the scriptures. And I think this is profoundly seen in the person of the Pope, who is the, Pope means father, the, the grand 
Poobah of the church, who <laughs> kind of sounds like Pope, doesn't it? <laughs> the grand Poobah of the church who rules over all of them. He is the final word in all matters of authority and doctrine, and that he is the vicar of Christ. He is, Jesus is not on the earth, but the Pope is. And you listen to Pope when he speaks. He has the ability to speak what's called ex cathedra, which means when he speaks out of this, this special way, in this special manner he goes about it, out of this special chair, it's as if scripture is being written. It is that authoritative Ooh. for your life and for mine. I, just, I like, yeah, I got chills. <laughs> that's that's messed up. And here's why. <laughs> that here's why that's messed up. First of all, it's not biblical, right? Back we keep hammering this, guys. But that's that's why, as Protestants, this is how we make decisions. We force each other because now here's the thing: being Protestant is sticky. We we have militated against the doctrine of the Pope. One of, one of the actions that Luther did that got him in so much trouble is he burned a papal bull, which a bull was like a, a, an issuance of the Pope, a, a, a statement. And Luther said, here. He said, that's bull. You're right. And yeah, well, and he, <laughs> he, he literally just burnt it and said, no, I don't have to listen to you. You're not special, right? Now, people will say, well, you Protestants, you have no authority and you anybody could say anything. Here's the thing. Yes, that's true. We reject this earthly authority that's incorrect because we accept the full authority of scripture and we constantly hold each other to scriptural authority. That's the only way that we can survive the chaos of not having a single central authority on earth. We say, well, we understand that now there's no boss here except Jesus. And how are we going to know what Jesus says? We're going to force everyone to go back to the word. And where did this, where did this authority come from? Who said that there was one person on earth that could stand up and say, you have to listen to this. It has the authority of scripture. I don't find that. And of course it was in Rome, in scripture. Of, oddly enough, the capital city of the Roman empire, not that, Jerusalem, that the Holy see is mm. somehow yes. more important than all these other places. And yes, yes. guys, it's, it's just not scriptural. Paul Paul didn't even acknowledge Peter, James, and John's authority. Right. He said, I don't care who they are. God doesn't respect persons. Right. Well, that's Paul. He can say that. No, he's trying to teach that to you. Right. That we don't acknowledge who persons are. Well, we need authority in the church. Yeah, we do. But you know what else the Bible says? 1 John 2, 27 says, The anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Mm. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is has taught you abide in him john is warning them hey guys don't be don't be f- impressed by these false teachers that come in with all their pomp and authority you have anointing from the holy spirit that is going to teach you directly and, oh that's real dangerous well it's in the scriptures this guys. is no this i don't know is, what to tell you this is the dangerous doctrine of protestantism yep that's which, uh, alistair which, mcgrath calls it protestants or uh what is it? Yeah, Protestantism's yeah. Dangerous, dangerous idea. idea. Yeah. And that the dangerous doctrine is I am, I, and man, this probably sounds just as scary to say is that the Pope speaks ex cathedra. I am able for myself to read, interpret and apply scripture based on the, in, based on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is a very dangerous idea. You know why? That's where Mormonism comes from. <laughs> that's where that's where all this stuff comes from. Is some guy just standing up and saying, well, I think it means this and a bunch of crazy things happen. But we're willing to accept that possibility because it's better to deal with that. It's better to, to have to have discernment and have to be forced to say, wait a second, that's weird. It doesn't seem like it's right. We got to go back to scripture. It's better to be a Berean than to submit to papal authority. Yeah. It's better to, to to have to deal with the chaos of everybody thinking they're right and, and people coming to different conclusions. I'd rather have that. That's what the early church was doing. Yes, it was. They were Judaizers and Gnostics and yep. all that. They, that's what and they heresies did. heresies and all that. And the way to fix that, guys, you know, because maybe you're listening to this and saying, well, but I'm concerned about bad teaching. I'm concerned about heresy. Me too. 
I agree. But the way that the early church dealt with it was they had to call big, messy councils and they had to work it out and pray through it and listen to what the Lord was saying. And it was worth it. Yeah. It was better. Jesus said, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher no. and you are all brothers <laughs> and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Wow. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And hey, listen, if you're a Protestant, like you, I would argue, and this maybe we don't talk about this so much, be careful that you don't do a similar thing in your church. Don't make people refer to you with a bunch of fancy titles. And, you know, like, I don't, yeah, goodness. I'm not saying that it's any, I can't come out and say it's anything wrong, but man, I, I am uncomfortable when I see pastors, Protestant pastors say, well, everybody calls me reverend. I'm like, why? Like who? Who cares? You're you're a teacher. Jesus, Jesus said, "Don't have anybody." Call Reverend, Doctor, Bishop, Apostle. Yeah, I don't. So and so. I don't think that's right. Like honestly, and I'm mean, I'm not gonna like. So the point being, know. we don't tolerate that here either. No, like. It's, but worst of all, that this putting all the authority of the church in one man. Yeah. Which you know no. that's that's why I'm not a Roman Catholic, but it leads into the next one. I'm not a Roman Catholic because of the corruption that has been endemic to this institution for centuries. Yeah. You say, well, the Pope is God's man. Okay, yeah, but you go back and look at these guys. How can you hold that doctrine and look at what these guys have done? Right. The the wars Gosh. they've started and the sexual immorality that's been done and the teachings that they've given that have been revoked in cases. And, and the political what, what about when the Pope papacy split when you yeah. had one in Avignon and one in Rome? Multiple like, times. How do you factor yeah. that in? It's almost as if this is something y'all just made up right. because it's corrupt. Yeah. The, the frantic, rampant corruption that kind of is almost a joke at this point. And the clear, the clear political vector to all this. The fact that if you study history at all, it almost, it becomes sad as a Christian to see people standing up and saying, well, we're making these spiritual decisions, but really it's what's happening is that this, this state and, and this kingdom are warring and the Pope is throwing it on this team and he's got his army that he's sending to go fight for this king instead of that. And you're like, is this what Jesus died? Jesus died for us so that we could do this, so that we could be part of these political power games. And, and it, it so clearly becomes corrupted. And that that's what happened in history is the yes. church became a political player, not just when uh, Constantine established the church, you know, or his, his descendants established the church as the official religion. Now, that. all of a sudden, yeah. there's no more pagan churches or pagan temples. This is the priesthood now. And if you want to be, you know, have that kind of power, it's where you go. And then when Rome fell and the Bishop of Rome was the one who, who received the, the barbarians yes. coming in, like that's a big deal so that the, it was a political player. So naturally, as should be expected, you had all sorts of corrupt individuals joining the church in order to leverage its authority and leverage its power. And this still goes on, unfortunately. There's still people that join because they want power, they want greed. But there's, if you're walking in the simplicity of Scripture and the simplicity of, a, of, a, of an evangelical Protestant church, it's much more difficult to have that happen, or at least you can deal with it faster because there's not the might of the state behind it. That would and, certainly be the hope, right? Is that, you know, you and I, we're not saying, obviously, it would be unfair to claim somehow that, oh, well, you know, you know, th they have all this sexual corruption as if that doesn't happen in, as if that doesn't happen in other churches. Yeah, granted. But, but we should say, talk about that, though. I, I will say this. We don't talk about the, there is no lavender mafia in the Protestant church. Explain what that is. The Lavender Mafia is a, a term <laughs> that is used to describe the rampant homosexual elitism that goes on within the Catholic church, meaning that many, and this this sounds like I'm being conspiratorial, I'm not. This is a term that's described by Catholics 
who who do, don't like this and are, are saying that it's awful and needs to be dealt with. This is a group of elite priests, bishops, you know, high power figures who are op either openly or known to be homosexual and use that as a power tactic, as a way to coerce, as a way to control, and, and it has infiltrated many seminaries, many, you know, institutions of power in the Catholic Church, and you... This, Grooming this, of young this priests. This becomes obvious. Finding, you know, yeah. using it as a, as co uh, coercion tactics. Like wicked, wicked We're going to compromise you, and now we're going to make you do whatever yes. we want you and, to. And this becomes obvious when, you know, of course, all of us from the outside, when we see, well, wait, why? Everybody knows that this bishop did all these horrible things, you know, hurt children, did all these awful things. And now he just gets moved and reassigned somewhere and he's still a pastor. And of course we're outraged by that, but how does that continue? It continues because within the structure of the church, there's deep corruption that's being allowed to proliferate. And, and, you know, you are allowed biblically to judge things by their fruit. You're allowed to look at an institution and say, that's, that is literally producing corrupted fruit trace that back to the root, find out what's going on and don't allow that. And that's, it's literally what Luther did. Yeah. Some of Luther's Luther sometimes, man, let's be honest. He pushed he, it, man. He really pushed the envelope against some of the stuff he wrote about the Pope. I mean, he spoke in ways that I, I we, we won't talk about on the podcast. They were, they were crude and, and, and profane in the way that he would discuss the Pope. But I think it came just to be charitable to him. I think it came from this deep amount of indignation over look at this this whole structure that you've set we up we all know what this is saying we all right. know what this is right. how are we still letting this go this whole on? structure that has been set up and you're claiming that it has the authority of god and yet everyone in town knows what's going on and it was it was a shame literally a shame to to the church to god's church it was a shame to the lord it was it was um it was causing people to and this he, he would say this he said this is causing people to mock and disbelieve Yep. Because you're claiming that you're you're Christ representative on earth and you're doing these things. Yeah. So this still goes on. And I know that there are some messed up Protestant churches, too. Of but course. here's the deal. When that stuff happens in a Protestant church, a good evangelical church, what happens? The church dies. The yeah. ministry moves on or people know well aware what this is and it doesn't last very long. There's an ability to deal with it. But because of the entrenched power system of the church, the Catholic church, these things are allowed to be perpetuated and to continue. And that's why, I mean, the problem of the papacy in the first place. Like, what do you do now with this, you know, Pope Francis, who's this big wokester that's in there now? Yeah. Like, what do you say to that? Is that church doctrine now? And it makes you wonder what might happen if things go a little farther in that direction. But uh, the, the rampant corruption just gives me one more reason not to join the Catholic Church. But number nine, I want to talk about the Counter-Reformation. This is a little history lesson here, and we're running short on time, so we might not dive into it too much here. But I want to talk a little bit about what happened when the Reformation began and was picking up steam and how the, the Catholic Church responded to the Reformation. First of all, it was to excommunicate and burn at the stake all these people that were denied. Which, how is that biblical, by the way? How do we do that in the church? We're going to burn people at the stake if you disagree with us. That's just what Jesus did, right? You know, doing <laughs> yeah. to people what had been done to the church for all those years. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but the Counter-Reformation was not to recognize that the church was full of all these problems and and maybe to disagree on some things, but to come together. But the Council of Trent was to box out all the 
reformers that wanted to be participating in this and to double and triple down on all of these things, to add books to the Bible, the Deuterocanon, to support what was going on, to formally establish some of these things. So as I said, a lot of these doctrines were innovations about the, you know, the supremacy of the Pope and, and idolatry of mass and so on. Well, they, they were even saying, this isn't even established doctrine. This is just stuff or that we're doing. Or it was just being popularly peddled. Right. right. Or, so, in other words, like it was happening in some little town that people were getting these indulgences sold and, and Luther would, was demanding, is the Pope cool with this? He needs yeah. to say something. And the, the response was, yeah, we're cool with it. We're going to yeah, triple they, down. They doctor, well, now it's doctrine. Now we've had a council. We didn't right. let any of you come who were still part of the church at the time. Right. We're not going to let any of you come. We're going to establish our doctrine. We're going to cha- you know, change what we regard as canon and tradition in order to establish what we've done. Not to listen to any of the things that came through, not to reform or, or any of that stuff. And then that's what gave rise to the Jesuits and the Inquisition. That we're going right. to we're going to now Literally, start hunting yeah. down mm-hmm. and torturing and executing anybody that disagrees with these things. Imagine it says the Society of Jesus over your door, and your job is to do that. We just read in Titus Have chapter one <laughs> that those that are to be elders and leaders in the church are not to be violent people. Yeah. How basic is that? That the way that this was handled, these things that seem eminently reasonable, even if you want to have a debate, and then people now, well, we can talk about these things, we can disagree. Really? Because that's not what you did then. Mm. You went on a rampage. You went on a rampage torturing and mutilating people in the name of Jesus. That's what happened. And there were Protestants that got it wrong too, but I'm willing to stand here and say they were wrong to do that. And I will say most of that was the political factions taking advantage of the Reformation in order to uh, break away from the authority of Rome. Which was a thing that happened. And, Which, and, and that's why the Puritans ended up leaving and coming to America. Literally. Because we're fine. If if Henry VIII is going to be a Protestant, but he's going to be just as ruthless as the Pope is, we're not going to stand for him either. And we're right. going to come to the States. And that's what right. happened. And that's the important, that, that's the thing, guys, is it's never like... Be honest about history. Like, be honest about what's happening in God's church. You never, you know, in, in all directions, you don't have to hide it or pretend. You can, because God isn't happy about it either. You know, and, and you don't have to feel like, no, we, we've got to, you know, and, and that's the weird thing about some of these doctrines is there's like this intense desire to not admit wrong. And then when wrong is admitted, it's weird. Like, you know, I, I once brought up to a Catholic, I said, so hang on a second. You're telling me that the Pope is, you know, infallible. But all these popes did this, and he said, "Oh yeah, but we've since determined that those weren't legitimate popes." Oh, and I'm like, well, "Well, then who, then who made that rule? Like, who, who gets to determine which of these guys who you're saying is infallible is actually infallible?" So, it, yeah, the, the guys, the whole system starts to be rickety, and when because it's it started, not built on scripture, it's right. not built on the on the unmoving standard of God's word. And it's when it built started, on sinking sand, and then it it's whatever you want it to be, which is it, the whole point. When it started to be rickety, the response was lashing out. Yep. You know, in this intensely violent way. And I don't I don't think that that's the mark of the gospel. No. Just to be frank, like, that, that's not the, that's not the history of that's not Jesus. What these societies and these groups have done uh, make me not want to be part of that. And yeah. and I'm, it makes me proud to be part of the, re, the history of the reformers sure. who were burned at the stake and had their flesh skinned from their bones. And and John Knox put in the galleys for 19 months. Like I, I'm proud to be part of that mm. tradition. And that leads to number 10. Uh, which is something that that took place shortly after that, which is the way that the Catholic Church went about and continues to go about their evangelism. I've traveled to many South American countries, or yeah. not many. I've been to those cultures several times. Mm-hmm. And what you can see that took place, especially when you get up into the mountains and up into these rural jungle areas, is 
evangelism for the Catholic Church involved you can keep your ritual, you can keep the things you do, but you're now going to do it for Jesus or Mary or John the Baptist. You're going to put a cross on it. You can keep the same altar, you keep the same thing, but it's it's just Jesus now. It's just Christian now, which has given rise to the the confusion and the legalism and the idolatry that still permeates all of these places. Guys, you might have been to a, a Catholic church in America and you might say, well, this isn't so bad. Go down to Peru, go yeah. down to Costa Rica and see what's going on in these places. And it's it's religious bondage. But this comes right, but Tyler, this comes right from this doctrine of the atonement, which if you teach the atonement as a transactional, mechanical thing, hey, do this and you'll get that. Do this and you'll get that, right? Then you, that can fit right in alongside many things. You know, the, the actual teaching, and I, this sound, I'm not being angry, or I, I just, I'm impassioned about this because it's so not godly. The actual teaching of the modern Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church isn't the only way to be saved. Yeah. Like, you go go look this up. I mean, you can find, there are, there are prominent Catholic teachers who will say, no, 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 Jesus is the primary way of salvation. Jesus is the preferred way to salvation. But, but many other pe- people can be saved. Like they, they, they teach that the other monotheistic faiths can save, meaning they teach that Islam can save. He's they got teach a lot that, of extra purgatory. To they go teach through. that Judaism can save. Well, if you believe that, then you can. Then evangelism is very simple. Then what is this anyway? Yeah, evangelism you, you is become, very simple at that point. And this is what you see quite often, and especially in the worst forms of it, that it's not a defense of the gospel or of Jesus or of God. It's a defense of the church and tradition. Yeah. It's a it's a loyalty to the church, mm-hmm. as opposed to a loyalty to Christ Himself, and you know all oh, that's just kind of splitting hairs. No, man, it, it matters. Like we've yeah, these ideas that don't seem like such a big deal have been tested and tried over thousands of years, and we've seen what kind of fruit they've borne. And this this so called evangelism of yeah, just kind of whatever you want to do is cool, as long as it's Catholic. Say a few Hail Marys, put a cross on it, stick a fish on it instead of, you know, this other thing. And, you know, the saints, I, I've just been reading a history book that talks about how many uh, polytheistic cultures accepted Catholicism readily because it was like, it's basically it's just swapping same. out one for the other. Yeah. It's just now you have saints and you have Jesus. And it's not that there was no good that came from that. Don't get me wrong, but why would I be part of this group? And especially since, you know, Vatican II, which we don't really have time to get into, which acknowledges that Protestants are Christian brothers. If even the Catholic Church acknowledges that as a Protestant, I am in Christ and I can be saved, why would I want to go over there instead? With all of these things that are so unbiblical, that are so weird, and and traditions that have been brought out of nothing, I, I would rather take my chances over here. And, and I've found that people that when you start to investigate these things, how many, Zach, how many former Catholics who come to the, our church or to other churches like it say, I've never read my Bible before. I've never been taught these things oh, before. Yeah. I was just told, oh, yeah, you know, say your lines and up, stand up, sit down, get a little moral for the day and, and learn how to say your prayers. But no one ever instructed me. No one ever opened up the scriptures. And I'll get asked all the time by folks that were former Catholics, why do they teach this? To which I'll say, I don't know. Right. I don't know. And it's just because don't. over time, tradition took the place of the word of God. Politics and money and power got involved and it eroded the foundation of the faith until the Lord finally had had enough and shattered the church into pieces so that those who were the real followers could be known. He was tired of his word being withheld from his people, tired of the gospel being held over people's heads as a, as a power grab. And yeah. that's why I'm proud to call myself a Protestant Christian. And I, I I do not have any infatuation 
with the Roman Catholic Church. Infatuation is the right word. I would like to say this too to people, and I'll, I'll so I'm just going to be honest here. Like I, I completely understand and I sympathize, especially with younger believers who maybe for a long time have been have grown up in a church that, if you look at it, you're like, well, that's a lot of weird cultural things we do that don't seem very biblical. And I want to get back to the root. I want to get back to the. I want to get back to you know ancient Christianity and all that. And I get that, man. I love history. I love I love all that. I understand why you feel like that. You want, and maybe it's good to be more connected to historical Christianity to say, wait a second, like what have we always done? Let's do that. I love all that going back to Catholicism isn't actually doing that for you. If you go back to Catholicism, you're not going back to ancient Christianity. You're not discovering the no, roots of your you're faith. Going back to you're going back to something that was innovated and added to in the, during the between 1000 and 1500 that is an, an accretion of extra stuff that came after. And you know how you know? Is because every time, go back to the early church and read about the early church. The early church was a persecuted minority that the second that Jesus established his church, they immediately were persecuted and low status because they believed something that was outlandish and that no one else agreed with. The second that the church grabs power and says, nope, everybody believes this now, that's the thing. That's not good. That's bad right? You, you you need to understand that the early church has always, it has always been shameful to identify yourself with Jesus. And if you can't accept that, and you need a, an, an additional thing that makes it seem, you know, classy and, and, and respected and high status for, oh, I'm a Christian. Look, you'll know because I'm, I'm cultured and fancy. Incense and robes and, and stained glass. Oh, it's so wonderful. That has nothing to do with Christ, you right. guys. Now, now am I They're saying, not wrong necessarily. No. But there's has nothing to do with. But don't Jesus. chase after a form of of godliness without the substance. Yeah. Right. Don't don't put on something outward because of the way that it makes you feel, and not actually dig until you get to the heart of it. The heart of Christianity is Christ, and and many many people in different expressions and different denominations and different places and times throughout history have found Christ. Follow them. Don't you know? Follow Jesus. Don't follow this expression that as we've as we've talked about today. It needs to be reformed. Yeah. It needed to be reformed then and still needs to be reformed. Yeah. And I I think that the accusation that is often thrown against the the Protestant church that we we frick, we splinter and we fracture. All right, that's fine. But you know the Bible said that there must be divisions among you that those yeah. who are true may be known. Yeah. Well, at least we have an ability to deal with corruption when it comes up. That we say Methodist church has fallen apart. All right, and we can't fix it. It's too late. It's too far gone. We're out of here. That's why we're departing. That's yeah, study that's your so church history. We that's why that. there have been. Why are there all these denominations? I'll tell you, friend. Pretty much every beginning of every denomination is a work of renewal and revival, where someone stands up and says, "This is a mess." If I have to leave town, leave my church, start a new church over here, I'll do it because I want to follow Jesus. And so many denominations, look at the history of the Wesleyans and the, you know, and the Presbyterians and the Pilgrims. And it's people saying, wait a second, this is not godly. This can't continue. This isn't the Bible. This isn't Jesus. We're going to go over here and pretty much risk everything and split off to actually follow Jesus. So the yes, you might look at that as a bad thing and maybe there's been some things that are bad, but Paul said divisions are better th than than not actually following Jesus. And, and I, I will say this that. too, denominations get along way more than people oh, yeah. accuse them of. Of course. Like that that's just that's out there, but you know, oh, we're so divided. It's like, well, hold on, are we divided or are we just different? No. Different congregations, different churches. Like it's I you know, I'm in a pastor's group that has Baptists and Pentecostals and everything in it. And 
I'd say we're united with each other. We love each other. We help each other. You know, we're not we're united in, a, in opposition yeah. to one another. Unless somebody's going to come in and start doing something crazy or some false doctrine, I, I think this is the way that it is. And this is might might be a lesser version of what it could have been. But as I look upon the Roman Catholic Church, I, I cannot square what they're doing with Scripture. And this is what I'm going to say to you guys as we close now. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're Catholic or you're former Catholic, you have family, and, and you're, you're kind of upset by these things, all I'm trying to get you to do is look at the Scripture. Mm. What does Jesus say? Yeah. What does the Bible say? And stand on that. There are all sorts, There's some things you might notice we didn't really harp on today. You right. know, we're not going to harp on robes. You know, we're not, not going to harp yeah. on incense. We're not going to harp on, you know, traditional services, you know, like, because who cares about that? The things that I do care about are the things we've listed today. Right. And I believe that a person can be in the Catholic Church and be born again. But boy, it's a dicey proposition, in my opinion. Uh, I think that it's when you start, especially looking at some of the doctrines of Mary and and all that, it's it's a dangerous place to be. And I believe that somebody who sincerely seeks the Lord is not going to end up there. They're going to end up following the Lord uh, in a Protestant church. I truly, sincerely believe that. And but God's, but God we love some... you guys. And we're oh, not trying yeah. to come down on you. We're trying to warn you according to the scriptures in the tradition of the reformers who went before us. And I just feel moved to say this too. If you're if you're listening and maybe maybe this is in your background and this caused you to walk right away from the Lord. You said, well, this I want nothing to do with Christianity. Can I just say, if if your experience of Christianity was in a traditional Catholic church and you think that that's what the gospel is, friend, you might not have actually tried Jesus yet. That's right. You you may not have actually experienced the gospel yet or, or God's grace. And if you're if you looked at this and threw up your hands and said, I, "This is ridiculous and I want no part of it," well, I I don't really want any part of it either. But you've got to try the gospel. That's right. <laughs> and and you know don't don't look at this and say, "Well, see, this is what Christians are." No, actually. You need to open up your Bible and Just see what Jesus has to open up your Bible and ask the Lord to teach you because you right. will. And that's sufficient. Well, happy Reformation Day, everybody. Delayed. Yep. And uh, happy Thanksgiving as well. We'll be seeing you all next time. We'll continue our uh, study through the doctrine of the Trinity. And we will see you all very soon. God bless. Enjoy, guys. Enjoy, guys.